Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? Hello, Grant. I am very well indeed. And yourself? I'm doing fantastic, which is surprising given it's a Monday morning, but who knew? I know, right? Uh, Now, you know how we've had a couple of episodes talking about the future of food and Mm -hmm. the really pointy end of food tech and the rise of sort of convenience meals and that's sort of been been our, you know, shtick for the beginning of the year. Today, we are going to take a look at a part of our society, but also our industry, and that's looking at food insecurity. And despite what many of us think or perceive that if you're going hungry or you have food insecurity, you're probably homeless or destitute, the reality is very different from that. So today we're talking to Brianna Casey. She's the CEO of Australia's largest hunger relief organisation called Food Bank Australia. She has a very high calibre background in terms of advocacy and industry representation. She has been the CEO of Australian Childcare Alliance in New South Wales and spent more than 14 years in the realm of agri-politics, not for the faint-hearted, as the CEO of the Queensland Farmers Federation and also Policy Director of New South Wales Farmers. So, without further ado, hi, Brianna, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Uh, Look, this is something we're incredibly passionate about at Food and Drink Business. Uh, It is our charity of um, that we want to support and shine a light on as much as we can. And I think it really came to the fore for us in the last couple of years of seeing the impact of COVID on society and the level of food security in our um, population. But let's take a step back from that and just what about if you could give us an overview of Food Bank Australia itself and how it works? Well, I think the first thing to recognise is that Food Bank is essentially the pantry to Australia's welfare sector. We are here to provide essential food and groceries to frontline charities right across Australia. They're household names. You would have heard of them, Salvation Army, Red Cross. Um, These are organisations that need food relief as part of a suite of measures to help people in crisis. And we pride ourselves in the way that we're able to obtain safe, healthy, culturally appropriate, nutritious food for people when they are vulnerable. And what I loved about not only your focus on this as an issue, but the way that you've described some of those myths that are out there, it's really important that Australians understand we do have a hunger problem here in Australia, that it's not just homeless people living on the street, it's people living on your street, on my street, in our communities. And I think the one thing that has come out of COVID that we cannot forget or underestimate is it's shone a spotlight on the fact that all of us fall on tough times. And it doesn't take much to lose your job, to lose your hours, to find yourself in a position where food becomes a discretionary item in the home. And that's where Food Bank absolutely shines. We are here to help people when they're at rock bottom and we delight in it. 
Yeah. It's, um, I, I think one of the things that I found so staggering was as COVID really started to have an impact, the figures that were that were coming out from uh, Food Bank Australia in terms of those in in need mm. was quite dramatic. What what were some of those figures that you were seeing? Well, I, I want to really emphasise the fact that whilst COVID has helped us demonstrate and bring out of the shadows this issue of food insecurity in Australia, it existed before COVID, and it's going yeah. to exist yeah. after COVID. And I, I want to take you back before. COVID-19 and before the Black Summer bushfires, we were assisting 815,000 people a month with food relief. Before before COVID. Before COVID and before the bushfires. So I really want to demonstrate and, and to bring home there was hunger in Australia before this pandemic and there are any number of reasons and they tend to be just life getting in the way. It is an unexpected illness in the family. It is losing your job. It is an unexpected sizable bill. It might be that your car tyres go and your fridge goes bust and then you have a a pet that needs uh, urgent surgery. You know, it's all those things that just happen at once and your budget doesn't have that little bit of wriggle room to be able to absorb it. And what we saw one through the Black Summer bushfires when so many communities were in crisis, but then going straight into COVID-19 where there was major unemployment, a lot of casual unemployment that had gone um, and a gap before we saw those government assistance measures kick in, we saw unprecedented demand for food relief. And most people celebrate milestones in our industry, uh, in the food and grocery industry. We don't like to celebrate them, but we need to acknowledge we are now assisting more than a million people a month. And it is a staggering statistic when we think about every one of those millions, being a child, being a grandma, being an aunt, being someone who's trying to study at university, being someone who's escaping family and domestic violence, every one of those million people has a story. And I just think one of the things we need to do as a community uh, is really acknowledge the fact that stigma and shame and embarrassment is an enormous barrier to being able to get help when you need it. And I really want to implore anyone out there that's listening, if you need food relief, that's not something to be embarrassed about or to to be shy about. We can only help you if we know where you are and what you need and we can get to you. So if you do know someone who's in crisis, I think just a bit of support and acknowledging that it's okay to ask for help is a really important, tangible thing that every one of us can do because it's brave to put your hand up and acknowledge that you're in trouble. It is brave to be able to say that I can't put food in my child's lunchbox and it is to be commended, not something to be embarrassed about. Oh, gosh, so true. But we just have so far to go with that, don't we? We do. As a society, you know, it just, I mean, I remember when I had, you know, I have four boys, but when I had two and they were little and we were very young, we would have nights where I banked on us going to the, my in-laws or to my mum's for dinner. It is such a common story. It is an extremely common story. And I think one of the things when we release the Food Bank Hunger Report each year that looks at the levels of food insecurity in Australia, where it's happening, why it's happening and what it looks like it does surprise people because I think a lot of Australians out there, if they think about hunger, one, they're going to think about overseas. They're going to think about malnourishment. They're going to think about (laughs) any country but Australia. And the reality is right here in Australia, what it looks like is working families. 
we often hear food insecure Australians colloquially call um, framed as the working poor because these are people who have employment but they don't have enough employment or these are people who've recently lost employment. These are people who are working incredibly hard to make ends meet and they just can't get those ends to meet. And we need to be able to, one, understand why it's happening, to look at the policy settings and the solutions in Australia to make sure we can address them. But while that's happening, we need to make sure we can get those essential food and grocery items to those people in our community who need it the most and get it there quickly. And so in doing that, what does does it look like? Do you have like a a setup in each state, like a, a big warehouse or and then a big distribution system that it goes to the Smith family up on far north Queensland or it goes to, you know, a particular region of Sydney or is that sort of how it works or is it much more broken down than that? It is a huge organisation, I have to say to you. Um, It's interesting when we describe Food Bank. I think when a lot of people think about charities, they think about um, small operations that work really hard and run on the smell of an oily rag and and that's we are all of those things, absolutely. (laughs) But we're also essentially um, an enormous logistics outfit. We do, in fact, have a food bank in every state and territory. We have a federated structure, so there's state and territory food banks with their own boards, their own management teams, their own really important food safety, risk management processes, because when you think about the volume of food and groceries that we are sourcing and distributing, we need to take it just as seriously as a commercial business. We need to make sure we have all of those measures in place because for us, not having the food leave the warehouse is not an option. And it's really important to acknowledge one, the extraordinary team sitting behind Food Bank that that source and distribute that food, but also the extraordinary network of volunteers that help make Food Bank run. Because we can't do what we do without food without volunteers. We absolutely can't. And that presented us some pretty unique challenges right throughout the pandemic. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if, <laughs> Woolies last- couldn't, if Woolies couldn't have enough staff, I can't imagine that you guys were like rolling around in excess oh. uh, bodies, sort of going. <laughs> I mean, the great news is because Food Bank is so trusted and so established in terms of the work that we do around food relief, it was very quickly recognised by government that we were indeed an essential service and our teams were indeed essential workers. So our teams were able to continue operating through lockdowns because that was when some of the most significant increases in demand for food relief happened. So for us, closing those doors... (laughs) was not an option. No, no. And I think if we really look about where the challenges were, the peak periods in demand for food relief when we were absolutely slammed happened to coincide with the busiest periods of supply chain disruption and the peak periods of panic buying. And in, I hate using the word normal, there is no normal anymore, but pre-COVID times, um, about 80% of our total food and grocery relief volumes per annum come from what we call food rescue. So this is rescuing food from the farm gate, from our manufacturers, from our retailers, bringing it into our warehouse, sorting it through and making sure that anything that is still fit for purpose, delicious, may not look quite right, but absolutely still edible and and still fit for purpose can get out the door. And when you go from 80% of your volumes being food rescue and then the supply chains break and there's nothing to rescue, it is the perfect storm of no food 
and enormous unprecedented demand for food relief. So we had to change everything that we did and we had to change it really quickly, not only in terms of how we sourced our food, but also how we distributed it because when charities couldn't come into the warehouses to collect their bulk supplies of food and groceries, we had to bring food bank to community. And we saw some of the most extraordinary changes across food banks. We saw Food Bank South Australia partnering with AFL clubs who'd also been stood down to home deliver food relief parcels to bring a bit of a bit of joy and a bit of coolness in a time that was really tough. Uh, we saw Food Bank Victoria open an international student pop-up in Latrobe Street in Melbourne to create a safe, bright, colourful, welcoming community for international students to be able to source culturally appropriate food. We saw Food Bank New South Wales and ACT partnering with the Defence Force, with police, with the SES to make sure no matter how remote your community was, we would get that food to you. So it has been an incredibly tough couple of years, but I don't think I'll ever look back and feel prouder than I have in the last two years about how we changed, about how creative we got and how extraordinary the Australian food and grocery industry was in facing the toughest times they'll ever face, yet still wanting to be kind and generous to food bank and the people that we serve. It, it's just stuff I'll never forget. I must say it was something that that in you know food and drink business we covered time and time again of various food companies and they were of all different sizes. They were from global to relatively small startups who were delivering whatever they could. And it was, you know, it, it's one of those things where you do you do sort of think, yeah, this it is this this is the time when you know we do actually see, I guess, the good in yeah. each other. But tell me, like at the moment, what's the scale of the of the food, you know, of what you're supplying and, and helping people with at the moment? Like how what what sort of what numbers are we looking at there? I'll give you some top line numbers, but I, I also want to move away from the numbers because I know for some people they don't seem um related. It removes the, yeah, it removes so the yeah. um but yeah, so in terms of what we did in 2021, we're talking about 48.1 million kilograms of food and groceries. And I really want to emphasize it's not just food. I know our name is food bank. But at the end of the day, when you go to a supermarket and you can't afford food, you also can't afford shampoo and conditioner and sanitary items and nappies and baby food. So anything you can find in a supermarket, with the exception of alcohol and tobacco, you can find at Food Bank. And I know that the industry has supply chains and we're hearing about them more and more. We don't have supply chains at Food Bank. We actually have surprise chains. We don't know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we don't know what we're going to get day in, day out. And whilst we delight in that unpredictability and the, and the surprises that we see, we also need a steady supply of certain products year-round that we know we're not going to get through Food Rescue. And it's one of the reasons that Food Bank came up with a program that was a world first and it is our signature program, our collaborative supply program, and that sees us identify priority products that we're always going to need in the warehouse. They tend to be in our most efficient supply chain, so there's not a lot of surplus. And we talk to the manufacturer, we talk to the ingredient suppliers, we talk to the the farm gate that the 
uh, provide the food inputs as well. And we stretch every dollar to manufacture those products just for food bank. And if I look at Lego's pasta sauce as an example, we work with tomato growers in Victoria, the herbs, the spices, the key ingredients that go into that Lego's pasta sauce come into the Simplot factory in Echuca. Um, those workers in there four days a year are producing pasta sauce just for food bank. The glass jars are provided at cost, the packaging's provided at cost, the transport is provided, and it means that every day in every warehouse we will always have that product. And that's a program that we grow year on year to make sure when we can't get it through rescue, we can get it through collaborative manufacturing. And when we can't get it through collaborative manufacturing, we actually have to buy the product. And it's meant quite significant changes in the way that we conduct food banking in Australia because we have to be able to adapt as the industry is adapting. And we absolutely are a food relief organisation, but we are intimately involved in the food loss and food waste agenda as well. Yes. And we commend our farmers and we commend our food and grocery manufacturers and our supermarkets for driving efficiencies as hard as they can and for making sure wherever possible we're either avoiding or reducing food loss and food waste. But when you're an organisation that relies so heavily on surplus, that means that we're having reduced volumes coming in. So we need to be creative, we need to be adaptable, and we simply couldn't do what we do without those extraordinary partnerships with the food and grocery industry so that we can always get those products to people in need. The, I guess the extension then of that, of that situation, though, is as you have, you know, industry looking to really reduce the amount of food waste and then there is less produce or less products for an organisation like Food Bank, it's then the actual pressing conversation about, so what are we actually doing about food insecurity? Like why does a country like Australia have one in six Australians go hungry like, and not eat for an entire day a week? And we've got one in six people in Australia going hungry, but a further 1.2 million children. So That's there are That's huge things. Yeah. I and can't I, tell you. Like I, when I meet people now, I, it's almost about the second thing I say to them. Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love and, it. I mean, it is. It's, but it's, where is that? It's very easy to get caught up in the... <gasps> this company did this and this company did that and that, and they do need to do that. That's part of their social responsibility. But the underlying issue here is why are there people in our community who don't have enough food to eat? Correct. And I think to go back a step as well, we produce enough food in this country yes. to feed our population <laughs> three times over. Three so times over. So how can it be that we have millions of people who are struggling at some point throughout the year? And we do need to look at the root causes. And Food Bank has been part of policy debates for years now in really trying to identify why this is happening. We are a member of the Australian Council of Social Service and they are taking a really detailed look at what's sitting behind poverty and inequality in Australia. We are very strongly supporting the Raise the Rate for Good campaign because when we translate that into what those minimum income levels need in reality, $44 a day. Now, when you take that $44 and you subtract from that, uh, whether it be school uniforms and school shoes and your electricity bill and your train ticket or if your If you want your kids there, to play sport yes, or, do an, or go to an art class or learn anything, an instrument. You just think through what you spend in a day, start taking that away from $44 and it doesn't leave you much for food and groceries. And we need to really understand 
why people are finding themselves in that position. And we know poverty and inequality, huge contributor. We know unexpected bills, huge contributor, which then lends us to what's happening with electricity prices, with utility prices, housing affordability and unavailability. Uh, We only need to look at what rental affordability looks like in the capital cities and our regions right now. It is not hard to understand why food insecurity is at the levels it is when people can't afford their rent, they can't afford their transport fees, they can't afford petrol if they do happen to have a car. I mean, I drove past a petrol station yesterday, $1.98. No one can afford these sorts of costs. And If we look at a very simple equation, poverty and inequality is about your income not being able to match your expenses and your debt levels. And when we look at how many people have drawn down on their super in the last two years, how many people have had um, their mortgage repayments frozen, whatever the case may be, I don't want to be a doomsdayer here, but I want to really be clear that the recovery from COVID isn't going to happen the moment the international borders open yeah. and we take our masks off yeah. and we can yeah. go back to the office. Yeah. Our experience with natural disasters tell us that a, a disaster like the scale of the Black Summer bushfires that lasted a few weeks will take five, six, seven years to recover from. We've had two years already of a global pandemic and all of the economic consequences and health consequences that fall out of that. We know mortality rates of those on low incomes were higher than others throughout COVID. We know those who've gone into COVID are going to find it even tougher when they come out of COVID. And what we need to focus on at Food Bank is ensuring that the policy settings, the income settings, all of the social policy frameworks and fabric that sit around the most vulnerable in Australia are operating as they should and making sure that food relief is there as an insurance policy to make sure if we can't get to the root causes and solve them straight away, that food relief will be there to make sure it is one less thing for families to worry about. Because if you are trying to go out and return to employment and you haven't eaten and you don't have appropriate clothing and you don't have a bus fare, it's incredibly difficult. So if we can make a full tummy one thing, that is bright in your day, then hopefully other things will happen from there. And that's what we need to focus on. And and we really want to let those million people a month who we are supporting through the Food Bank Network know that Food Bank will be there to wrap our arms around you for as long as it takes. And we know it's going to be long and we know it's going to be complex, but that's what we're here for and we will keep doing it. It's just, yeah, I mean, it just strikes me. It's such a huge undertaking. I know. Um, I, I just think, I mean, I'm glad I, you're driving it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important, though. There are so many things going on within our world at Food Bank and within the, the broader uh, world across Australia and globally that we need to be conscious of while all of this is playing out. And nothing has brought it home more to me than the last two or three weeks where seemingly innocuous flooding in South Australia suddenly led to months and months and months of supply chain disruption. And it speaks to our lack of planning in Australia to have 
one east-west rail line, one south-north rail line running parallel to the arterial roads that do the same, which means that the moment flooding comes through and takes out one, it also takes out the other. So we went from flooding in South Australia having localised impacts to flooding in South Australia cutting off all access to the Northern Territory and Western Australia. And we, in a very practical sense at Food Bank, service Alice Springs and Central Australia right up to Tennant Creek out of Adelaide. So Food Bank South Australia had pallets and pallets of food sitting in our warehouse in Edwardstown ready to send into Alice Springs because that warehouse was empty very quickly when there's no food in the supermarkets and we've got lockdown communities because of COVID. Demand was huge. 1,200 people a week are being assisted through the Central Australia Food Bank. Uh, But we couldn't get the food in. The roads were closed and the rail was closed. Our only option was actually to look at airdrops. Um, Ultimately, we weren't successful in having government support to have that happen, um, but we were able to get the food in 10 days later. But it does serve to demonstrate that when we're talking about supply chain solutions in Australia, it's critically important that we consider food relief as part of that. And I have to commend Emergency Management Australia and the federal government who have absolutely squarely put Food Bank at the table to make sure in times of crisis those in our community who are vulnerable are not forgotten. Not only are they not forgotten, they're actually at the table, part of the conversation, and our solutions can actually have benefit for them. And if there's something that I'm going to look back on with enormous pride uh, about my career at Food Bank, it will be the fact that food relief and vulnerable Australians are just as important around the the policy-setting tables in Canberra and, and right across the country as anyone else. Well, there's so much to be said, isn't there, that people talk about, we just need a seat at the table. We do. And, and that is, I mean, that you've just said that, that that's actually happening is, um, I think, a really major step forward in terms of if we're going to be start looking at, at policies and, you know, government action or legislation that is going to attempt to reduce the food insecurity and the levels of poverty and, and hardship within our communities, yeah, having an organisation like Food Bank at that table providing this, the actual information about what's happening at that front line is critical and also incredibly valuable. It is. It's so important. And one of the great initiatives throughout COVID, the Federal Social Services Minister, Anne Rustin, established a national coordination group and it has brought together Food Bank and a number of frontline charities like Red Cross, Uniting Care and so on to come together very, very regularly, and we still come together regularly, so that we can provide that grassroots information about what is happening in community, what's driving increased demand for emergency relief, what's sitting behind increased demand for food relief, not only so we understand why it's happening and where, but more importantly, so we can actually address that increased demand for emergency relief and food relief, because it's one thing to know about a problem, it's another to be able to fix it. And I think it's really important um, that we understand this isn't going to be something that goes away in a couple of months. And I know we're coming into an election and it's going to be fraught with all sorts of debates about all sorts of things, and I just want to make sure that vulnerable Australians are part of the conversations we have when we look to what leadership looks like in this country and what great outcomes look like in this country because uh, we can talk about jobs, we can talk about employment, we can talk about any number of issues, but at the end of the day there are a few basic rights in life that have suddenly become a privilege and 
food and being able to feed yourself and your family has suddenly become a privilege and not a right. And we need to come back to basics and make sure that every person in this gorgeous country of ours has access to food when they need it. Full stop, the end. That's it. It's it's not complex. <laughs> no. And um, and I really do. It really is. Full stop, the end. I just think that's it's the perfect place for us to draw a line today because, uh, you know, it, it's a huge issue and it has to stay on the front page near the top of the list of, you know, of policy points that needs to be addressed. And it's been an absolute privilege to have you on today. I know that we've we've sort of chatted on and off for the last couple of years, but this is uh, this has just been an absolute treat. And I really hope that the people that listen today take it back to their employers and their workplace and go, you know, there's there's people in this company who are who are going who don't have enough food. And and what are what are we doing, you know, to to really keep that on the agenda and also make those people not feel ashamed or embarrassed mm, because we're all, you know, we're all a missed paycheck or a, a major life event away from being in a very similar position. And I just want to thank you so much for your absolute resolve and enthusiasm and passion for helping those amongst us who just need that extra extra bit of support and it's just been fantastic. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for being passionate advocates for all that we do as well. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, and it's been an absolute joy. I hope I'll be back soon. Of course. Yes. I love having you. That makes, that makes you like a, a friend, a friend of the podcast. We have returned <laughs> guests. And, uh, and I think that that will be really, I think that will be a really valuable thing for us to do. Even, you know, let's just get away from the, uh, <laughs> I don't know what we'll call it, the election, that's the polite word, and uh, maybe we can reconvene towards the end of this year and see the state of the land, I guess. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much, Brianna. And you. Well, thanks, Brianna. Thanks, Kim. And, of course, thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode, but until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media. 